Welcome to Making Up Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And we are in the final stretch. We have about 12 days to go, and what I'm going to be doing now is I'm going to be working every day in trying to remember all the things I read and consolidating them into big stories. What I'll be doing on the podcast is I'm going to do, uh, for each list that I have, four episodes devoted to the really big questions. Um, So first, we're going to do four episodes on organizational sociology. Today, I'm going to be talking about uh, the development of capitalism as an organizational form. The big picture is that whenever we talk about modernity or capitalism or industrialization or any of these really big processes that are, you know, the centerpieces of 18th, 19th, and 20th century history, we often focus on a particular set of things. We look at technological developments, or we look at political developments and follow politicians and wars, or we look at the workers who are stomped on and exploited, or we look at the agricultural laborers who are kicked off the land, or we look at novelists and ideas and culture. However, we have a tendency to forget the boring stuff, the boring everyday order that keeps the system running, the ranks of administrators, clerks, managers, tax collectors, and bureaucrats who actually make sure that everything happens on time. This is an oversight. It's an oversight not only because this history of management has a history, but also because this history of management, I think, really directly affects the story of capitalism. If we look at it, we see capitalism not so much as a story of the most efficient things winning out and creating a society of, you know, massive material wealth, and neither do we see capitalism as a story of self-interested cadres of evil capitalists trying to screw everybody over. Instead, we see capitalism as a path-dependent development that uses old styles of legitimation and organization and importing them into new, you know, uh, systems of production and consumption change them. And so when we look at it this way, we have to pay attention both to the uh, uh, organizational context, the things that are happening before, and the moments of crisis that push this organizational context to change. So I'm going to tell the story of the Industrial Revolution and modernization from the perspective of management. I will first tell this in, I think, a quick thumbnail sketch, and then I'm going to go more into detail about the important steps and give cool examples and stuff like that. So in the 18th and early 19th century, we had the fact that there was a new form of industrial production, uh, combining capital-intensive machinery, cheap energy, and factories. This needed you know, management. It needed ideas of how to manage all of the uh, raw materials and manage all of the workers, and also to justify the new kinds of production that were going on. 
To do this, the people who were managing these factories took the idea of the workhouse. The workhouse was this uh, uh, institution that took poor people who needed to learn how to work and concentrated them. This concentration of people helped to manage the expensive and difficult machinery of the factory. Similarly, these new kinds of factory owners took the uh, growing middle-class urban ideology of personal self-control and personal probity, and they transformed it into a political economy idea which saw the self-regulating market as something which created virtue. People were poor because they didn't work hard enough. People could be taught to work hard enough if they went into the market and sold their labor and were educated by the force of work. What was first a domestic ideology of how to teach bourgeois young men not to squander their inheritances, in turn became a political ideology teaching workers to go into the factories and work hard so that these bourgeois young men and then middle-aged men could have inheritances. However, what's really important to note here is that these institutions of control, the idea of the factory and managerial discipline, and the idea of uh, poverty and work as moral things, were not adopted because they were more efficient than the alternatives. They were adopted because they were temporary explanations for problems at the time, problems of stability and legitimization. And then, once they were taken up, everybody who wanted to set up a new organization borrowed from them um, to legitimate themselves, to organize their own companies, and so on. These are then institutionalized. Uh, they are copied not because they're the most efficient thing on earth, but because that's what everybody else does. We can see how this changes then, not in tracking the efficiency of this kind of ideology, but instead of tracking when the ideology breaks down. The problem with uh, this new factory system is overproduction. Because of the massive capital outlay, it actually makes sense to keep on producing stuff even when you actually lose profit from producing any individual good. This means that profit continually falls and then factory owners are trapped in a, a, a cycle of ruinous competition. The cracks in this started to show in the 50s, but they didn't really get re big until the depression of the 1870s. The British solution was not along the lines of free trade and liberal ideology. The British solution of, uh, to this problem was not to welcome in the free market even more, which is what you might expect if we focused only on the ideas. The British solution was cartelization, which means uh, informal or formal groups of producers uh, agreeing on certain guidelines so that they don't um, bump up to each other in ruinous competition, and government regulation. This happened, I think, because of a more robust civil society, because there's more networks of people around, and because there is a much more ingrained hierarchy where uh, factory owners and uh, members of parliament and government bureaucrats all are living close together and socializing in similar kinds of so so, uh, situations. In America, however, 
the story is very different. And we have to turn to America when we want to look at the development of capitalism because the American model becomes the model of 20th century capitalism that we're likely to read backwards onto what's happening in Britain. In America, because of entrenched anti-monopolist uh, uh, attitudes and anti-state attitudes and because of a cavalier uh, uh, mentality towards natural resources born of a massive resource frontier, instead of making agreements uh, uh, based on the power of the state or making the agreements based on the power of civil society, American companies competed to the death. They engaged in ruinous competition until there were only one or two big, big, big companies that could actually handle everything. In the 1890s, this changed uh, when uh, trust busting happened and um, monopolies started to become a political problem. And instead of dominating particular industries, these large American companies and turned around and started to diversify their holdings. They started to not just be railway companies, but to invest in telegraph lines, and not just invest in telegraph lines, but also invest in other kinds of production. And here we have the beginning of American corporate capitalism. Large, vertically integrated, horizontally integrated, uh, decentralized, kind of octopus-like companies that are really big, not just to uh, benefit from the efficiency of being really big, but are really big so that they can influence the state and public opinion. This becomes incredibly important because after World War II, this American model of capitalism becomes the model for the rest of the world, as in pushing global economic recovery through the Marshall Plan, America also exports its idea of corporate control. So that's the thumbnail sketch, and I am just looking at the time that it took me to say that, and uh, I have a, a little bit of a, a, a dread in the pit of my stomach because I should have been able to do that in two minutes, and I think it took me like six so I'm going to retell that story with uh, some more detail uh, right now and uh, hopefully also think about how I can get that story much quicker. Um, so let's start again and kind of go a little bit slower. So the really big reason for these new kinds of corporate control was that growth in the coal economy was very different from growth in the advanced organic economy. When a, co a company or an organization grew in the advanced organic economy, it meant uh, increasing the number of people who worked uh, and sometimes increasing efficiency through a division of labor. This is what's called Smithian growth. It can also come from um, increasing uh, range of trade, uh, expanses of national markets, which allow for divisions of labor on a geographic scale. Growth in the mineral economy, growth in the coal economy, is different. It's biased on capital and energy, not labor. Uh, a great example of this is that between 1856 and 1936, in Europe, labor inputs grew 50%. So, so we can imagine 50% more sweat going into the European economy at this time. Conversely, GDP and energy use both increased by 
100%. That's four times more than the growth in labor inputs. This suggests to us that growth is coming not from increases of labor, not from increases of efficiency, but rather because of increases in energy. So in this capital and energy bias development, people need to pay attention to how to manage resources. And since it's a different kind of development, they come up with different kinds of managerial ideologies and different kinds of corporate organization. There's two things at stake for people at the time in coming up with these uh, conceptions of control. The first is to figure out how on earth to actually manage the increased complexity and size of capital-intensive industries. Uh, they can get bigger, which means they're more efficient, but they also require tons more planning because you need to buy everything, you need to ship it off to sell it on large markets. It's just more complicated. The risk of failure is much uh, larger, and the information networks on which these uh, organizations are based are just kind of sprawling. Secondly, the people who are running these things need to justify themselves. They need to explain why they benefit from the distribution of power and profits. So let's look at how this happens. The first organizations borrowed from previous organizational forms in the advanced organic economy. I mean, they did not know that they were starting a new world. They did not start their factories and say to themselves, well, this is a turning point in world history, guys. We need to create something entirely different. No, they borrowed from the organizational forms uh, that they saw around them. However, in borrowing from them and porting them into this new capital and energy intensive development, they changed them. So we can see this in uh, how factory production was directly modeled on concentrations of labor that were used in the workhouse. Now, the reasons for concentrating labor were different. You needed to concentrate labor in the factory uh, because you couldn't move around machines as much. The big machines that were the basis of this production uh, were not mobile. Furthermore, you wanted to make sure that on this new massive scale of production that the stuff that you were making was uniform, and so you wanted a bit more oversight of the people who were working. People who argue that factories were made primarily for social control ignore the fact that factories were actually pains to manage. If you are a capitalist, it's far better for you to have a putting out system where you don't need to bother with the actual circumstances of production. You just give people the raw materials and then take their stuff. Factories are added costs to the capitalists. They require them to hire managers to oversee labor. And this is troublesome if you've ever been a worker and seen just how annoying dealing with management is. Everybody's annoyed by management. Nobody likes it. And so management was required to deal with the problem of capital, but it borrowed from the organizational form of the workhouse. Now, these managers, the people who actually ran the organizations, were also coming from a more traditional form of uh, uh, business partnership. 
they, like partners of earlier mercantile firms, were uh, recruited from the social networks of the owners themselves. The owners would be involved in day-to-day -day production. They would often live close to their factories. Matthew Bolton's Soho was at his house, uh, one of the first factories, the first big factory that made steam engines. And the managers were recruited from the same kinds of social networks that these people might recruit their old business partners, um, their friends, their friends' children, the people that they lived around, people in their wider information club networks. And similarly, these managers had a path to promotion that was really closely modeled on those of the old partnership system. They could work their way up and then buy their way into the partnership, or they could work their way into the good graces of the manager and owner and uh, marry into the family. Uh, Bolton Soho, again, was run by him and Watt's kids. The second generation is where things begin to change with management. Um, there's a rush for managers as uh, the sizes of these factories grow, and so you need to pull from different groups of people. The problem is, is that there isn't a lot of engineering education around that can actually train managers. And so a lot of managers are recruited from the ranks of workers themselves, uh, in addition to those old kinds of networks of uh, partnership patronage. However, there's not as much room for promotion and so you get in the third generation the idea of managers not simply as proto-partners, but managers as a job in and of themselves who are distinct from the owners. Now this is a story that is talking mostly about factories, primarily cotton mills, but I want to insist that this adoption of new kinds of organizational forms that then evolve because of changing relations uh, of production in capital and energy bias development are appropriate for the other kinds of uh, production that I say are still industrial even though they don't involve manufacturing. And let's take the brewing industry as an example. The brewing industry is really important because it's one of the first vertically and horizontally integrated companies in Britain. They're really capital intensive, they're really big, um, and they are, you know, more like modern corporations than anything else in British history. And they, I think, although there hasn't been work done on this, I think that it's pretty likely that they borrowed this organizational form from the Admiralty, uh, who uh, had a vertically and horizontally uh, organized victualling office that dealt with brewing and bread production and stuff like that. So they were borrowing from an older organizational form, I think. I think it's quite likely. But let's talk now about the moral justifications for uh, these new kinds of production methods. These organizations justified their control from porting the old middle-class values of discipline, self-help, probity, planning, and accounting. So just as middle-class families had to teach their sons not to squander the family capital, so too was the factory supposed to teach the working classes how to not squander their capital, how to learn to work hard, how to learn to be a responsible individual. And so they saw themselves as not just places to make money or make things, but as representatives of this larger self-regulating market that through the goodness of God over the long term would help people turn into, 
you know, uh, good liberal subjects who took care of themselves in the ways that middle class people like to take care of themselves. And it was also a way of justifying their activities to everybody. They said, look, we're not just making a product. We're not just making lots of cheap cotton. We are helping people. We are helping people learn how to do that most important thing, to become a responsible citizen of the state, to become somebody who actually contributes to the country. So in the 19th century, you develop slowly this very British brand of capitalist management. Um, it is uh, marked by smaller companies than those that you see in American Germany who have direct control, usually through day-to-day -day management, um, where the companies are deeply related to the middle class and upper middle class bourgeois family, um, where you have untrained managers, often uh, uh, promoted from workers, um, engineers who learn their craft on the job, um, and a moral sense of discipline, both in the working classes and in the middle classes and upper classes who manage them. The idea that the market was supposed to be a moral thing that was the object of social control. Now, this system started to be challenged when the rate of profit fell because of ruinous competition. And there were two solutions that got adopted in Britain that are very different from the solutions that got adopted in American Germany. These solutions are cartelization and regulate, regulation. And I just want to explain why they might have happened. Um, British capitalism was different because British capitalists were different. They were made up of people who had relatively dense social links with one another. Um, they married one another. They hung out in clubs with one another. They bought landed estates next to each other. They knew MPs who were in positions of power. They knew bankers. They knew them personally. They lived next to one another. They all went to London for the season and all went to uh, uh, the same sorts of places on holiday. And this meant that when there was a challenge to uh, the status quo and cartelization became an option, it didn't need the sort of strict enforcement that it needed in the US. People could have informal re uh, regulations about how companies were meant to operate and they could be sure from this kind of gentlemanly capitalistic uh, attitude that their co-workers, that their, their competitors wouldn't compete too much. Similarly, we might point to the tradition of hierarchy or the lack of a frontier as examples of why British capitalism was far more amenable to cartelization and regulation. Um, we can see regulation um, in a number of, uh, uh, of places. Uh, I'll just point out um, the uh, uh, water system of London in the early 19th century, which was bound by a series of gentlemen's agreements that particular water companies wouldn't um, you know, expand to particular parts of London. We can see this in the Telegraph before nationalization. Um, we can also see this in imperial behavior, where the state steps in to create new markets for British companies so that they can compete in the imperial realm and not need to compete in the domestic realm. Or to put it a different way, by active British imperialism, companies no longer needed to worry ruinous competition because they could count on the profits that came from new markets. In America, it was very different. 
The declining rate of profit instead led to cutthroat competition, where a few companies sought to control everything. There were attempts at cartelization, but they were blocked by the government. There were attempts at regulation, but the government was not able to get enough control. Instead, you got uh, organizations trying to make self-contained systems that meant that they could control everything, that they weren't going to be put under pressure from ruinous competition. And this led to the creation of the super big American company, the vertically integrated, horizontally integrated, decentralized, multi-departmental company that Alfred Chandler and his ilk celebrate so much. They may have been more efficient in certain ways, like Chandler suggests, but more importantly than their efficiency, these new companies had one thing going for them, besides the fact that they were immune from competition. They could exert political control. They were too big to fail. And since they concentrated power in managers, since they concentrated power in their own bureaucracies, they could exert this power far more effectively to change public opinion through advertising, through lobbying, um, and they could exert their power to change politics through bribery, through electing uh, uh, amenable politicians. Now, it's important to point out that this is not necessarily more efficient. In fact, this large American corporation, uh, do, you know, based on factory production is very inefficient for a lot of things. Take, for example, high technology uh, uh, machine manufacture. This is really inefficient to do in big factories because it changes all the time. It's really, really variable based on ever-changing technology. Uh, and so if you want to change that, you have to change your entire factory. It, similarly, with high fashion industries that change really often, like lace making or cloth making, it doesn't make sense to make really, really big factories to, to make these sorts of things because the factories would have to change all the time. It's far more uh, efficient to have highly skilled workers who have multi-use tools, a lower capital, uh, perhaps high energy, but high skilled, high labor development. However, American capitalism developed differently. It was really modeled on these large organizations. And why this matters is not because they outcompeted everybody else. Uh, between 1900 and 1945, there were lots of different ideas of how management was meant to run. The big change is after 1945, when with the Marshall Plan, where American capital, literally American finance, went out to try to recreate European economic life, American experts also exported their idea of what companies should be. So I'm going to close with just a uh, far more explicit discussion of the intellectual debates that this uh, big idea is participating in. And that intellectual debate can be summed up as in efficiency theorists versus everybody else. The efficiency theorists like Alfred Chandler and the neo-institutional economists say that the patterns of organization and management that develop in modern capitalism develop because they're better at doing stuff. They're better at organizing the complexity of large firms. They're better at dealing with uh, uh, really big companies. They're better at allocating resources by the visible hand of management. 
others point to other factors. They say, look, it's not really efficiency that does it. Uh, Flinkstein sees um, organizational fields as uh, selective in and of themselves, as the actual uh, ecology of organizations that grow up around particular organizations as having a selective pressure, that they grow up because of institutional reasons to do with legitimacy, um, that they don't necessarily need to be efficient at all. Others see key drivers as the role of the state, um, who create legal arrangements uh, like the establishment of limited liability joint stock companies that do not have pretensions for the public good. This allows the socialization of ownership of capital without the socialization of responsibility. It's not that these things are more efficient, but that particular kinds of political decisions have been made to make them more efficient. Another perspective that I hope is uh, uh, really coming out in my account is the importance of power, that big companies might not be more efficient, but they're certainly able to exert more power over uh, the state and over society. Another way that we might look at this is simply as the process of modernization, um, that there is some sort of social, economic, ideological development that goes in lockstep as uh, uh, things change with growing urban centers and industrialization. Now, the important thing for history to do when we talk about this stuff is not merely to join into debates about what kind of cause is most important for the development of these particular organizations. I think that what's next for us to do is to make connections between these path-dependent institutionalized ideas of what organizations should be and other realms of activity to connect management and politics and society and culture. I think that that's the next step. I hope that that is where my work will lead me in the future. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you have questions uh, that you think I might get on my orals and I should answer, tweet them to me at at MackieTeacher. If you have comments, uh, leave them on the podcast uh, in the review section on iTunes. Share us with your friends on social media. Uh, tell everybody about it. Uh, you know, start a company in my honor. Make a, you know, charter. I don't know. Um, thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music. You can find him on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Give him money. He likes money. And thank you to Duncan Barton for the image. I will be back uh, this afternoon with more about organizational sociology. And I think that I am going to talk about what we get when we look at organizations as objects of historical study. It will be exciting, I promise. Thanks very much. I'm going to go to you.